to John chapter 1. Thank you all for that song, beautiful song, and uh, certainly an appropriate song for the time in which we live. 1 John chapter 1, and uh, as you find your place there, if you'll join me in standing as we read uh, the Word of God this morning. 1 John chapter 1, we're going to read the whole uh, chapter, so I, uh, you know, all of 10 verses, and so hopefully we can stand that long. Um, you know, sometimes you say we're going to read the whole chapter, and it really sounds like a lot, but uh, it's really not that bad. I'm really just giving everyone a chance to find your spot there. Now, don't go to the Gospel of John, amen? Go to 1 John, towards the end there, and uh, that'll help. All right, God, uh, 1 John, the epistle of John, chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1, says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts today. I pray that you would challenge each of us. I pray that uh, if there's any person here that does not know absolutely 100% sure that heaven will be their eternal home, that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, for those who do know that and have received Jesus as their Savior, I pray that today uh, you would speak to us, that you would uh, bring comfort where comfort is needed. Lord, that you would bring a uh, joyful spirit in the midst of a tumultuous time. But Lord, also that you would challenge our hearts, that you would bring conviction, and that you would help us to make the decisions that we need to make today. Help us to be responsive to your word and to the moving of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would allow the Holy Spirit to have free reign and the ability to move amongst us. And uh, Lord, that there would not be anything that would hinder the working and the moving of the Holy Spirit today. We love you. We thank you. And in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The emphasis of really the whole book of 1 John is that God is light. Isn't that an incredible thesis statement from which to write an epistle? Uh, John is, is the one who uh, had such a close relationship with our Savior. He was the one who so deeply loved, and Jesus uh, so deeply loved him. And the one who, uh, it's like, really, if you look at the apostles, there's the twelve. That's kind of the inner crowd there, the ones that Jesus invested his life into. And then you have the three, Peter, James, and John, who were kind of that inner circle of that inner circle. And then you kind of have John. He's almost in a category of his own, uh, the, the love, the relationship between him and the Savior, uh, to the point where even as Jesus hung on the cross, transferring the responsibility of caring for his mother to John. And, uh, and I mean, just the, the love that these men had for one another, the care that they had for one another. And uh, so John, the one who knew Jesus so intimately, who loved him so intimately, who had such a, uh, a deep relationship with our Savior during his time on this earth. He wrote, first of all, the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, he wrote about the fact that uh, the life of God was in Christ and, and that, it was, uh, that he was fully God. And it was him living out uh, and revealing to man who God is and who God was. And, and it's just uh, it's the revelation of God. Now, in the book of 1 John, the epistle, he is telling those who are believers that it's supposed to now be the life of Christ in us, that others should see Christ, that others should see uh, the example and the picture of a Christ-like life. And so he uses this idea of light. God is light. Uh, light is interesting because it has uh, multiple elements that can be looked at, but just uh, one thought quickly 
light cannot be corrupted. It can never get dirty. And if you were to take a, uh, some muddy water and you were to fill up a cup of muddy water and you were to look at the light through that, uh, you would find that that light can come through that muddy water, but the light is not damaged or made dirty by that muddy water. The light is perfectly pure still. And the fact is that light can never be corrupted. And yet, while it can never be corrupted, light always exposes corruption. We can't really see dirt until we get in the light. Light exposes corruption without itself ever becoming in any way corrupted. And isn't that a great picture of our Savior? And I believe that's at least an element here of uh, John being led to write, God is light. And the picture of this God, the one who exposes corruption, Jesus, the one who is the great exposer, uh, the one who came to men, but men love darkness rather than light, we are told in the book of John and uh, in the gospel of John. And so we see here uh, the light, it's that which comes to reveal the darkness, it's that which uh, comes to, uh, for, for show, or to show out and to uh, reveal corruption, and yet he himself, Jesus, though he walked amongst us, though he lived here, though he was tempted Uh, by Satan, though all of that came, he was never corrupted at all. And he was never in any way damaged by being near sinners because he was still just as pure and just as holy when he departed this earth as he was when he came into it. What an incredible Savior that we have. What an incredible picture it is that John is using as he writes this this, uh, epistle from the perspective of God is light. I want you to notice with me three elements of this incredible first chapter of the gospel, uh, I'm sorry, of the epistle, the first epistle of John. Uh, we see here, first of all, a personal testimony. This is a personal testimony that he is giving of Jesus Christ. Verse number one, he says, that which was from the beginning. The beginning, of course, being even before time started. Uh, God is the one who was eternally there. Uh, he is from the beginning. And then he goes and he says, which we have heard. Now in this time, many of these believers were being attacked by Gnosticism and uh, this idea that Jesus was really, he was a good man, he was a good teacher, but you know, uh, God, he's really just kind of a spirit being. And, and, and they were saying things like when Jesus came and he resurrected from the dead, that his body was not a real body. Uh, it was just kind of a, you know, basically like a ghost. And, and, and you know, I mean, Jesus, he's a good teacher and he's a good man. But to say that he's God, I mean, God is, is just kind of this, this idea. I mean, God is in everything, and God is everything. And so the tree is God, and uh, the plant is God. I mean, it's just kind of, it's all there. And so, you know, to really define it in such a, a closed idea, I don't know about that. I don't know that we could really say that he really is God in the flesh. And so John, as he's writing, he's going to deal with some of that. And he deals with this, first of all, he says, look, uh, he's the one who was from the beginning, eternal God. But he's also the same one that's eternal God is the one we heard with our very ears. He's the one that we sat and listened to. Can you imagine the innumerable times that John had sat and just listened? I mean, John's one, he said that he could fill, he didn't use this wording, but he could fill all the libraries of the world with the volumes that could be written. Can you imagine, and who knows what maybe John was thinking about as he said this. I remember hearing him say that. I remember, and probably there wasn't a specific time, maybe just in general, we heard, I mean, I mean, it wasn't just something we'd heard about. This wasn't just something that somebody told us about. I mean, we were there, we heard him with our very ears, and yet he's eternal God. And so he says we heard him, but then he goes a step further, which we have seen with our eyes. We are eyewitnesses. This is a firsthand account. I mean, this isn't something that, uh, that we're pretty sure of. We were there. Then he says, which we have looked upon. Do you ever wonder, why does he say we saw him with our eyes and we looked upon him? I mean, obviously you looked on him if you saw him with your eyes. But the word looked upon here, uh, it's a deeper word. It has the idea of to view with attention, to gaze upon or to look with admiration. So here's what he's saying. We heard him with our ears. And a lot of people did. The crowds were large. We saw him with our eyes. A lot of people did. The crowds were large. But there were some of us, we didn't just see him and we didn't just hear him. And there were even many of these, but we looked upon him, we gazed upon him, we paid attention to him. And and, and we watched, and I really think here it's probably uh, more specific to the 12. We watched how he functioned behind the scenes. 
We watched the grace with which he handled the different situations of life. We watched the manner in which he uh, dealt with this or he dealt with it. We watched how he talked to this person. We watched, I mean, we, we watched with amazement. We watched with attention everything that he did and everywhere that he went and, and every response that he had. And, and we were just learning and gleaning and we were recognizing, even at the time, we are watching the very God-man, the one who was eternally here, and we're getting to learn firsthand from him how to handle the situations of life. Wouldn't that be something? And, and we went, and we didn't just see him with our eyes, we paid attention to him. We gazed upon him. We, we locked in our attention. We made sure we understood where he was and what he was doing. And, and even in the Gospels, we can see so many times where the apostles would then come after uh, a preaching meeting was over and they'd say, now, Lord, why did you do this? Or why did you say that? Or what did you mean by this parable? And, and Jesus would explain those things to them. And, and so they were watching, they were paying attention to the Savior. He's saying, look, we saw him who was from the beginning. We heard him. We paid attention to him. We looked upon him. And then he goes another step which our hands have handled. Literally to touch. Can you imagine? Look, I was one of the ones, I mean, not everybody in the crowd would have touched the Savior. Not everyone had this opportunity, but John's saying, look, I was one of the ones that I was there. When these people come in and they tell you that he's not really real and, and they tell you that they're not so sure you can really trust that Jesus was actually God, let me just tell you, I heard him, I saw him, I paid attention to him, and I had the opportunity even to touch him. I know who he was. This is a firsthand account. You know, I wonder here, and, and, and I don't know for sure, but I wonder here if maybe John was thinking about that last supper as he wrote this. That time when he was leaning on his breast, that time that, that, that there was a, a physical closeness between him and the Savior in that last supper, as we call it. And I wonder if maybe his mind didn't go back and say, oh yeah. Yeah, it wasn't just a casual relationship. There was a closeness. I wonder if maybe his mind didn't wander a little bit down uh, uh, the path of time to him and uh, those other apostles being in that upper room, frightened, scared to death. Jesus was dead. They didn't know exactly what to do or where to go. Their whole world had been shaken. Their whole worldview had just changed. And now they're just gathered in this room, uh, fearful and locked in the room, trying to not be found out. And all of a sudden, the Savior just showed up in the middle of the room. Remember that? And, and he said, go ahead, touch me. You can put, remember when he told Thomas, you can put your, uh, the, the next time you can, you know, really the reason Thomas wasn't there the first time, he skipped church on Sunday night. Amen? <laughs> Just a thought. But uh, here, he, here they are. And, uh, and he comes back and he says, hey, Thomas, go ahead, put your hands in the wounds. Hey, Thomas, go ahead and, and feel. Go ahead and, and, rec and I, I, am, I imagine <laughs> all of them. I mean, if Thomas got to, if I was one of them, I'd have been in there saying, well, I, I, I mean, you know, let me make sure. Remember he ate the fish? He's proving to him the body's real. And I wonder if he didn't go back and say, you know what? We touched him. We touched him before he died, and we touched him after he died, and we can verify factually he was not just a thought or a figment of the imagination. He was real. He was God in the flesh. And those who are coming to speak to you, they don't have the first-hand account. We have the first-hand account. So here is John writing this, and then he ends this first verse with this phrase, uh, the one that we have handled of the word of life. He gives him that title, who he is. He clarified it in John's gospel. Uh, he had already clarified these wording, this wording. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Hey, he is the one. He's the one who is God. He's the one who was with God. He's the one who we know as Jesus. He's the one who's the word made flesh, the word of life. So we see here, first of all, the characteristics described. John writes to him, he says, look, it's a first-hand account. I can tell you for a fact some characteristics about the Savior and and our relationship to him. But then I see the confirmation of deity in verse number two. For the life was manifested. That means literally made visible. 
literally we could actually see him. It's not that his life began when he came. We understand that. The incarnation did not begin the life of Jesus. He was God eternal from eternity past. He had been there. So this was not the beginning. It was merely the continuation. But it was the continuation on this earth so that we as human beings could see him. So that they who were alive at that time could see and record for us verses like this. Look, we saw him. We handled him. We were there. We have a firsthand account. We can verify for you that Jesus is indeed God. And so now he's confirming his deity. Look, it's his life that was eternal, that was now made visible. We've seen it. We bear witness of it. We're showing to you now that eternal life. Isn't this an interesting statement? Verse number two. And show unto you that. Not just what eternal life should be. We're not just showing you what a Christian life ought to look like. John says, look, we're showing you the same life that he made manifest. Eternal life. The same life that he came and said, here's here's what life eternal looks like and is designed like and, and here's how it should be lived and here's how God operates. That's the life. Now this is quite a claim, but this is what John's saying. It's that eternal life that we're making now visible for you. I wonder, could you make that claim this morning? John's a man of like passions as we are. He's not perfect. But you know what he's saying to him in essence? If you'll watch, you can see the life of Christ in me. And it'll model for you how to live the Christian life. Isn't that basically what Paul said? Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Uh, Here's what he's saying. Hey, if you'll just model, if you'll follow the model that I'm setting. So pastor, isn't that a prideful statement? No, not when it's made in the humility that Paul and John made it with. I'm just modeling the life of Christ. I'm modeling living a life of, of grace. Oh, I'm not perfect. But follow what I'm, laying, what I'm leading in. Follow this direction because this is the plan that God has for us. And the life of every believer ought to be that which models the Christian life. The life that is spirit-filled. And we ought to be able to go to somebody maybe that we are uh, counseling or, or, or uh, uh, that's not the word I'm looking for, uh, discipling. We ought to be able to go to somebody that, uh, that if you're a mature believer, you've been saved for a little while, you ought to be able to disciple somebody and say, hey, why don't you come over to my house and just see what a Christian home looks like? I mean, shouldn't we be able to say that? Not prideful, but just, hey, this is, the, this is, this is a Christian home. We ought to be able to say, hey, uh, let me just give you an example. The way that you said that to your wife, as men, we ought to be able that have been saved for a little while, a new Christian, uh, we ought to be able to help a young man with, you know, really, she's not your roommate. That would have been a real wise spot for an amen right there, all the men, especially if your wife's sitting next to you. Uh, Let me give you another shot at that one. Your wife's not your roommate. Amen. Uh, sometimes, you know, guys that, that are 25, they want to give their wife a hard time like she's their roommate. And uh, I had somebody one time that was in our church and his wife fell down a couple steps and fell into some mud and he started giving her a hard time in front of some teenagers. Man, I jumped in. I said, no, 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 hold on. You can't do that. And uh, uh, the reality is we ought to be able to say, look, the way that I treat my wife as a man is modeled or it's a, a model of how Jesus would treat his church. We're not perfect at it, but it ought to be modeled, amen? I mean, as ladies, the response then to that husband and that leadership and that love ought to be the same as the church's response to Christ, Ephesians 5, amen? I mean, the reality of it is that John is not writing light words here. He is confirming something. He's saying, look, we're showing to you that same eternal life, the life that Christ displayed to us. Now we have have taken that, and because we have the Holy Spirit of God who's taken up residence in us, we're now modeling for you that life. We're now modeling for you how to live the Christian life. We're modeling for you the same thing that Jesus was modeling for us, and that ought to be carried out in 2020 as well, that we are modeling 
struggling for the world around us, for other believers, for those who are a little behind us uh, in the Christian growth, uh, those who maybe you're a uh, grandparent age, uh, you ought to be modeling for the next generation behind you what it is to be a good grandparent age Christian. Amen? That's a good way to say that, isn't it? Uh, Those of you who are the parent age, uh, you ought to be modeling for your children what it is to be a good godly parent. I mean, we ought to be living this thing out. It's not just a pie-in-the-sky idea. It's practical. We can do it. We can live it. Why? It's not because of us. There's nothing good in us. It's because we have the Holy Spirit of God who's taken up residence. And that's what John's writing to these believers. He's saying, listen to this. I am modeling for you the same thing Jesus modeled for us. It's the Christ life. It's him living through me. It's him who's the one who's empowering. It's all I'm doing is submitting. It's not me. But it's because we have a great God and the Holy Spirit of God who takes up residence that now we can live a life that is pure and a life that is a model of what Christ would be living like if he were here. You know, if that becomes our standard, it becomes really hard to criticize each other, does it not? Because if my standard is I want to live a life that so models Jesus Christ that everybody who sees me can see a clear picture of that eternal life that he modeled while he was on earth. Can we agree we all fall short of that? So when we fall short, it's real hard for me to look at Brother Hammer and say, you know, Brother Hammer, you're falling short of that standard. Because the reality is, if I'm right with the Lord, then I'm going to see I'm just as short, probably shorter of the standard. Because if I'm going to be like the Apostle Paul, then I'm going to look at my own life and say, oh, not, whoa, look at me. Remember the Apostle Paul who said, the things you see in me do, the God of peace will be with you. That same Apostle Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. And you know what? When we look at ourselves in the light of Christ, and we look at ourselves in a humility, it's impossible to look around at everyone else and say, why aren't you fixing everything? Because all of a sudden, our own sin begins to glare forth. And we say, well, I'm so far from the standard. The standard is be holy as I am holy. I've got a ways to grow. So we see here that John is not making a prideful statement, but he is making a practical statement. He's showing forth that eternal life, that that very same life. It's the life that was with the Father. That very same life, it's the life that was manifest to us. That's what he's saying in the rest of verse number two there, which was with the Father manifest unto us. So he's clarifying it in verse number two, the confirmation of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verse number three, he gives a clear declaration. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Here's his declaration. The one with whom we have fellowship is the same one of whom we are speaking. And that one is the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, who we understand are one and the same. So he declares forth now, look, because we are living a life that is led by the Holy Spirit of God, because we have seen uh, Christ and we have uh, modeled then after him, and because we are allowing the Holy Spirit to have reign in our life, you know what happens? We're in fellowship with the Son. We're in fellowship with the Father. And this fellowship is wonderful and sweet. And it's also what allows you to have fellowship with us and us with you. Because what happens is the Christian's fellowship is not based on our personalities. Amen? You know, if it was based on our personality, we'd only get along with about 10 other people in church. And we really wouldn't like about 15 people in church. I mean, they would just, we'd have an issue. (laughs) Amen? Because if we have a church this size, that's just the way it works. So how can people that normally would not get along at all and rub each other totally the wrong way have perfect fellowship? By being in fellowship with the Father, by being in fellowship with the Son, by being in perfect submission to the Holy Spirit. And you know what happens then? Our fellowship as believers is exactly what it's supposed to be. So we see here uh, that John begins in these first couple of verses with a personal testimony. He begins with the testimony of the life that he's watched Jesus live and who Jesus is and the fact that he is now modeling after that life and setting forth a good example. And, and then on top of all of that, what's come out of it is fellowship with the brethren and fellowship with, the, with God. And so out of all these things, he tells us, look, this is a personal testimony. This is a personal witness. This is something that uh, we, are declaring he says uh, that which verse 3 that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you 
that ye also may have fellowship. He kind of draws a difference there, that which we have seen and heard. Remember, these people with this false idea have crept into some of these churches where John is writing to, and John's saying to them, look, we're the eyewitnesses, we saw it, we handled him, we know Jesus, we'll declare to you. And I almost wonder if maybe he's not aiming at some of those who are saying the exact opposite. We'll declare to you the truth because we were there and we saw it. And so stop spreading the lie that Jesus never actually bodily raised from the dead. And so John here is writing with great force. He's writing with great power. If you just read the text, it's such a gentle uh, way of saying these things. He words it so kindly, but there's some force behind it. And he's writing to say, look, this is a personal testimony. And then secondly, we see a powerful truth. Verse number four says, and these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. All right, what is he writing? He's writing the things he's already written. And then he says, verse five, this then is the message which we have heard of him. So now he's going to bring it all down. And he's going to say, we're writing all this so your joy can be full. You need to understand all these things. But let me simplify. Here's the message. Here's really in a nutshell what I want you to get out of this letter that I'm writing to you. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He just took and in essence boiled everything down to here's my message I'm giving to you. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Aren't you glad today we can live a life knowing that God is light? We don't have to wonder if God is good. We don't have to wonder how much goodness is in him. We don't have to wonder if there's any admixture of bad uh, in this time. Of course, Greek mythology and the Roman gods were still uh, very common and they were known to be very corrupt. And here's what he's saying. He's, God, our God, is not like all the other gods that the world has come up with. He's not into all the paganism and the wickedness and the idolatry and the, uh, the, the pornographic stuff that was very popular in the day uh, and all of the debauchery that would take place in those uh, places of worship so-called for these false gods. He's saying, look, our God is not like that. In our God, there's no darkness at all. There's not even a, a, a hint of darkness. There's not even a shadow that can overshadow him. There is nothing in our God that has any darkness. And, and so he's telling them that's the reason that you can have then lasting joy, verse number four, because we know Jesus is indeed God, and we know that in God there's no darkness, there's only light, and that means he's perfect, and he's pure, and he's holy, and he's good, and that means no matter what's going on in your life, you can have joy in the midst of it, in the midst of their dark and dangerous reality, John tells them that the fullness of joy is available, even here. John Phillips said, John was fully aware of what a dark and dangerous world it was in which they were living, these Christians. The most horrifying persecutions attacked the church from without, and the most heretical persuasions corrupted it from within. They're in a time where there is heresy that is moving in the church and there's persecution coming from without the church. These people are living in a day that some of us look and we say, I hope in the United States of America we don't have to endure some things like that. They're living it. They're living what we say we hope we don't become. We've lived in such ease in America. It's a great blessing but it can sure allow us to let our guard down and it can sure be a great curse in a sense. And here are some believers who are living in a time that's difficult. They don't yet have the completed canon of scripture uh, as we do. It's not put together uh, certainly in a book and and they can just come into church and just open their Bible. It's, It's not that simple for these people. They don't have all that we have and all the advantages that we have just according uh, or just coming back even to the simple thing of the word of God and, and being able to have it complete and carry it in and lay it in our lap and read from it as we study the scriptures together. They didn't have those kind of abilities and, and advantages. So John writes them this letter in the midst of a dark time, in the midst of a swirling culture. As persecution is rising increasingly against these people, as those from within are attacking uh, with vengeance, John writes to them and says, hey, even here, there's fullness of joy. Don't be discouraged. Now, that doesn't mean we're always happy. Amen? Happiness is a feeling. Happiness comes and goes. But joy is not just a feeling. Joy is a gift God gives. Here is joy. He says, look, you can have joy no matter your circumstance. 
You can have joy when persecution is coming. You can have joy when the problems are there. You can have joy in the midst of it all. Why? Because you serve a living Savior who is good and only good all the time. So hey, no matter what's going on, just have joy. I think if the Apostle John could be here today and preach to us, he'd probably look around and say, you're worried about this freedom? I mean, that's probably how he'd, you know, he'd probably have that thought. Man, I mean, none of you are in danger of being exiled and you're meeting like this? <laughs> this is great. And if we said, but John, we've had this and we're afraid it's going to become that. I think he would say, hey, Christians in America, hey, those of you of Eagle Heights Baptist Church, have joy. Because you know what? Even if it becomes your worst fears, or worse than what you can imagine. You still have a living God, and your time here is just temporary. And your time, I mean, it's just for a little while that you're going to be here. And you know, when, when they did the things that they did to me back in the first century, you know, the reality of it is, if I die, I die. If I live, I live. It really I'm really just here to serve my master. And one day I'm going to see him face to face again. Wouldn't it be something to be able to say, I'm going to see Jesus again face to face? One day I'm going to see him again. That day's coming probably soon. You know what? You don't have any reason to fear. There's a virus, okay, but there's really no reason to fear because you're serving a good God. And you're serving the God who's in control of the virus and you're serving the God who's in control of the nation and you're serving the God who's in control of the election no matter what they decide to do with mail-in balloting. And you're serving the God who's in control of all those circumstances that you're worried about and looking at. And by the way, I think we ought to be a part of all those things. And I think the church needs to be in those conversations. And the church needs to define right from wrong. And the church needs to take a stand in the United States of America. I'm not saying let's not take a stand. I'm just saying we shouldn't have a spirit of fear. We should have a spirit that's filled with fullness of joy. And you know what our world needs to see? Believers who are standing with a sweet spirit in the right spot on the word of God and that are filled with joy. And if we ever come to the place where they come and take our Bibles and burn them in the street as they did in Portland, or if we ever come to the place where they pull us out of our homes and they burn us at a stake, and I don't know that that would ever happen in our country. I hope not. Uh, I think there may be different means that would be used. But the reality is that if we do ever come there, and if those things ever do happen, you know what made the difference all through the ages of Christian persecution? They went to that stake or that cross or that noose or that drowning, and overwhelmingly, they went with joy. Oh, you read the stories of them singing the songs of praise to the Savior. And they couldn't stop them with flames, and they couldn't stop them with arrows hardly. And multiple stories that you can go and read, they ended up having to uh, kill the person before the flames would kill them because they were having such an impact with the fullness of joy in the midst of the circumstance. Can I just say to you, as we look at our world and as we see a virus and as we see all the different things, and, and I'm really not trying to get into how we should see those today, I'm just saying this, let's make sure we maintain a fullness of joy because our focus is on the Savior and not the circumstance. John writes to these believers in difficult setting and he says, hey, God is light. And then he says in the next part of it, in him is no darkness at all. Isn't it great? He doesn't just say in him is no darkness. Then he puts that extra on there at all. Let me just clarify. There's no hint of darkness. There's no slight flaw in his character. There is nothing which brings any darkness in any way. He is absolute light and only light. This week, one of my best friends from college, his name is John Jupp, lost a baby. Baby Aaron died in the womb on Thursday. They knew there were some complications, and some complications came up on Thursday, and uh, the baby, they'd already named him Aaron, the baby's heart uh, stopped beating, and they kind of anticipated something was happening, and they lost the baby. They went to the hospital, and of course right now they won't even let their kids come in with them, and, and it's just a, a hard day. He put on Facebook, please be praying for us. Uh, on Thursday morning, he said tonight, uh, this evening, that uh, my wife will be giving birth to the stillborn baby. On Friday morning, let's see if I can get through this. <clears throat> Friday morning, he posted this on his Facebook page. If I have something in my heart 
that God could do that would make him no longer good, then I have an idol. He is God. His way is perfect. In all caps, always. Then it says hashtag at the bottom, prayer beside the bed. Here's a family, they've just lost their child. You know what they're talking about in praying by the bedside. If anything, makes us think our God is not good. It's just an idol in our heart. Because he's always right. He's always good. Now I hope that if I were to lose a child that I could respond like that. I haven't been there. I haven't had to find out. I don't want to find out, to be honest. But I hope that would be the response. But you know, the reality of it is, sometimes when we're in the midst of it, when it's the morning after the great trial that has come, it's easy to sometimes in that moment stop and say, well, you know, I mean, I've got to at least figure this. Why did God and why is this? And You know, we really, and some of those are okay, I think, at times. But the reality is this. We've got to come back and just say, I've already determined God's good. It doesn't matter if the child is lost. It doesn't matter if the circumstances are changing. It doesn't matter if the country uh, changes. It doesn't matter if my finances run dry. It doesn't matter if I go through some hardships in my marriage and I just have to stick it out and be faithful. It doesn't matter uh, if there are some uh, trials or some problems or some people in our family that are upset with it. It really doesn't matter about all that. What matters is God is good no matter what. He's always good. And in, because of the fact that he's always good, I can look and say, you you know what? In him is no darkness at all. He never makes a mistake. He's never off by a hair. He never comes to the place where he should have done it a little bit different. He's never done it just out of, uh, I think I'll just hit this person over the head for the fun of it. He never does it for a wrong motive or a wrong means. It's never because I messed up and God got mad at me and decided to just beat me over the head for it. It's always perfect. It's always filled with grace. It's always what it should be. He always is perfect in every way. Sometimes when we come to the trials of life, if we're not cautious, we can lose our joy. And what we're really doing is we're saying, you know what, it's not fair. I've lost my joy. Or I don't understand it. I've lost my joy. Or I don't know about how God's handling this, so I've lost my joy. And really what we're doing is we're forgetting the fact that my focus needs to be on Him and His goodness and His glory. And when my focus is there, it doesn't matter about all the other. He's good. He's light. And in Him is no darkness at all. We see here that in him there is no darkness. I see, first of all, that this is a personal testimony. I see, secondly, this is a powerful truth that God is pure light and no darkness. And then I see, finally, a practical test. Verse number 6, the Bible says, If we say that we have no fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we, uh, that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. I see, first of all, the reality of our condition here in these two verses. We are either walking in darkness or we're walking in light. Don't you like how John defines this for this church? Look, there is no in-between. There is no, well, I mean, you know, we're, we're kind of walking in the gray space. No, no, no. Either you're in light or you're in darkness. John's kind of a black and white guy, amen? Uh, he's, there, there, is no, there is no mixture. There is no, and by the way, that doesn't mean that I'm saying there is no gray area on anything anywhere ever. Uh, that's not reality. But, but the truth is that as John's writing to him, he's speaking here in verses 6 and 7, I believe, of salvation. And he's saying to him, and I'll explain that in a second. He's saying to him, look, either you are or you're not. No in between. Wouldn't we say amen to that? Either you're saved or you're not saved. There's no in-between. So he writes to these people and he says, look, if you're walking in the darkness, and, and here's what happens, the people who are walking in darkness, usually, oftentimes, they think they have fellowship with him. That's what they're saying. We have fellowship with him. But yet they're walking in darkness. They're living a life that would not uh, be consistent with a life that has been changed by the glorious gospel and by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're living uh, in the darkness of this world still. And, and he says, look, the, the reality of it is this. He's not talking about salvation by works, but certainly we can know by works. We can understand something. We can judge the fruits. And, and he's looking and saying, look, if nothing has ever changed, if you're just walking in darkness 
and you're happy living in that darkness, then you're just not in the light. And there are people all over our world that are right here. They think they have fellowship. They think that they'll go to heaven. They think that everything's okay because they've been good and they've done this and they've done that and they've gone to church. And the reality is, that's not enough. They're walking in darkness. But then he says of those who are walking in the light, verse number seven, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. So when we're saved, then there's fellowship with believers. So here's a good test. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. Now, the word sin there is really the key. That word sin deals with the idea of position, the positional sin, the fact that we are a sinner by nature. And so he's saying, look, the blood of Christ is what washes away and deals with that sin that we have in our life. But then he goes on, verse number eight. Now he's going to deal with the believer. And that's really who he's writing to primarily here. He says, if we say that we have no sin, then, uh, excuse me, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our, now notice the difference, sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's the reality of our condition, saved or lost. But then there's the revelation of our condition, how we are walking with God even as a Christian. Uh, The marks of walking in darkness uh, as a Christian are in verses 8 and 10. Verse number 8 tells us we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. Verse 10 says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So a Christian who is not walking in fellowship with God Here's what happens in that Christian's life. Number one, they have a false sense of holiness. They think everything's fine. They think that they're doing good. Uh, They have deceived themselves. They think that uh, they just don't have any sin that needs to be dealt with. They think, hey man, I mean, you know, really the last time I had to confess sin, it's been a little while, I I just don't really sin much. I mean, you know, I just every once in a while, I make a mistake and I have to go and ask for forgiveness, But, but I really just don't have a lot of sin. Okay, well, they've deceived themselves. And so even as a Christian, we can do that. So these are the marks that we're walking there. They lack the ability to see their sin. They think they're okay, and they have nothing to confess. And then it tells us, verse number 10, or excuse me, uh, end of verse number 8, that God's word is not dwelling in them. So it doesn't mean that they don't have Christ dwelling in the Holy Spirit, But they're not dwelling. I think the idea here, uh, as John is writing, would tie right back to what he wrote in his gospel in chapter 15. As he wrote about how Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. Remember that? And we're supposed to be dwelling in him and he in us. It's not saying we're unsaved. We can't lose our salvation once we have it. Praise God for that. But we can live without truly abiding in Christ. We can be saved. And we can even know the Bible. We can even read our Bible in the morning uh, on a regular basis without truly abiding in him. So here he's speaking of relationship. He's speaking of fellowship. He's speaking of the way that we are abiding and spending time and the relationship that we have with Christ. And so uh, these marks are here that the word of God is not dwelling as it should. Let me ask you this. When was the last time that you memorized a new passage of Scripture? When was the last time you memorized something and then you just really dwelled on it for a while, meditate? When was the last time that you did that? Hopefully not too long. But you know, we need the word of God abiding in us, dwelling in us. We need it to be consistently there. Uh, we need to be abiding in Christ. That means we need to have a short sin account. That means we ought to, on a regular basis, be coming and confessing our sins so that they can be dealt with. So we see the marks here of walking in darkness, the revelation of our condition, but then we see the marks of walking in the light. Verse number seven again says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, here's the first one, we have fellowship with one another. Somebody who's walking in the light consistently, they're gonna have fellowship with other believers. Uh, Then they are cleansed, of course, by the blood from all sin. Then verse number 10 tells us, if we say that we have not sinned, Excuse me, I'm sorry, verse number nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have fellowship with other believers, cleansed by the blood. Then number three, there's the recognizing and confessing of sin. The Christian who's walking in the light, who's abiding in Christ, then it's very, it becomes very clear our own sinfulness. That's why if you watch Paul, uh, he gets worse and worse and worse in his own estimation the longer that he's saved and the longer he's in ministry so that by the end he's the chief of sinners. 
And the reality of it is that that's because I believe he was so walking with God and so abiding in Christ and his relationship and his fellowship that his own sin became so apparent to him. It helps we recognize and then we confess sin. And then when we confess sin, the Bible tells us we are cleansed from all unrighteousness. So these are marks of walking in that light. It's an amazing thing. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Did you know he doesn't just forgive you of your sin? When you come and say, Lord, I had a wrong thought today. Would you forgive me? Or I handled this person uh, wrong. I shouldn't have said that to him. Would you forgive me? Did you know when we come, it's not just out of his goodness. I mean, he's good, but it's not out of his goodness that he says, yeah, I'll forgive that. No, it's out of his righteousness and justice. He doesn't just say, oh, yeah, everything's fine. No big deal. Thanks for saying you're sorry. No, no, no. He's righteous. In other words, he made promises that dealt with our sins and how he would forgive our sins. And he always keeps his promise. That's right. He's righteous. And he's just because our sin was already paid for on the cross. Then when, when we come and we confess sins, specific things, we come to God and we confess those. Those were dealt with when that sin overall was dealt with on the cross because Jesus already paid the price. He doesn't expect it to be paid twice. He rather looks and he says, hey, that was accounted for, that was paid for, that's been washed by the blood of the lamb. And when that was washed clean, that price was already paid. And so positionally we stand righteous before God and yet in the Christian life, we come back and we confess sin, specific areas where we've made mistakes because that deals with our fellowship with God. And now he says, hey, it is only just for me to forgive that sin because it was already dealt with by Jesus on the cross. It would not be just to have it be paid for twice. So in his righteousness, he does what is right and he keeps his promise. In his justice, he allows the payment of Christ on the cross to be that which pays for our sin. So it is God's righteousness and God's justice from which he forgives sin. Though certainly all of that came about because of his goodness, but he doesn't just go, aw, no big deal. Isn't it amazing how perfectly our God has placed all this? And how he's put it together in such a divine manner. In closing, the Bible tells us about the sin offerings of the Old Testament. They were made up of two different offerings. The sin offering itself, and then the trespass offering, which went along with it to make, <clears throat> excuse me, to make up those sin offerings. The sin offering dealt with what in these passages would be called sin. And that's overarching, overriding. Uh, we sin, we have sin. We are born a sinner. Sin is your condition. Sin is the fact that we are sinners. We don't go out and do sins just because uh, of the fun of it. We do it because we were already a sinner. We have a sin nature. And we don't have a sin nature because of the fact that we've done sins. We do sins because we already had a sin nature that we were born with. And so that sin offering dealt with sin, the overriding, the condition. But the trespass offering, of course, those offerings are all pictures that carry to the New Testament and to Christ. The trespass offering dealt with the sins. That's our conduct. That is the specific areas that we have sinned in. So when I came in salvation, at the moment of salvation, when I was five years old and I realized that I was a sinner and that I deserved to go to hell for all of eternity and I was putting those books in that bookshelf and I bowed my head as just a little boy and I don't even remember the exact words I said, but I said something to the effect of, dear Jesus, I understand that I'm a sinner and I'm asking you to forgive me of my sin and be my savior and I'm receiving you right now as my savior. I confess that I'm a sinner. Would you please forgive me? When I said something like that to the Lord, here's what I was doing. I was confessing my condition. I am a sinner. But I did not confess every single sin. I mean, as a five-year-old boy, I didn't even know everything that I would do between then and now. So the reality of it is, you can't confess every sin that you'll ever commit into the future. Now, they're dealt with at the cross, at the moment of salvation, in that sense. We're placed in the righteousness of Christ before God. Amen? Praise God for that. We can't lose that position. We cannot lose the fact that we get to go to heaven. But you know what we can do? We can lose fellowship. We can stop abiding in him. Because all of a sudden, those sins that we are committing, if they're not dealt with, the picture that was there in the Old Testament in that trespass offering, if those specific sins are not dealt with, they build up between ourselves and the Lord, and there's not relationship like there should be. 
So what we do is at salvation, we have it dealt with, the fact that we are a sinner, our, con our uh, condition is dealt with, but now our conduct must be dealt with on a regular basis. So we are either one or the other, in the light, in the darkness, saved or lost. That's true. That's sin. But throughout the Christian life, there may be times where we're walking in the light and times where we begin to walk in darkness. Why? Because it affects how we're handling the sins, the specific things that we've done and whether we've come and confessed them. And we can begin to walk in a manner, oh yes, still saved, but that is not abiding in Christ and consistent with the walk he desires us to have. So really, this is the question this morning. Number one, do you know Jesus as your Savior? Do you know that if you died, you'd wake up in heaven? Have you come and had your sin washed by the blood of the Lamb? Had that condition, that sin nature dealt with? Have you allowed that? Have you come to that place of confessing, I'm a sinner, I'm in need of the saving grace of Jesus and the blood that Jesus shed on the cross to wash away my sin nature? Have you had that applied to your life? Have you dealt with your sin? Secondly, have you dealt with your sins? Maybe you say, Pastor, I know I'm saved this morning. There's no doubt about that. I know that if I died right now, I'd go to heaven. But maybe right now you'd say, I know there's some things, though, that I haven't gotten right with God. There's some things that I've allowed into my life. There are some words that have been said. Or, or there are some uh, feelings that have been felt that would be of a sinful nature. There are some thoughts that I've had that I ought not have. There are some things that I've allowed my eyes to look at that they should not see. There are some uh, movies that I've watched or music that I've listened to that would not be pleasing to the Savior. There are influences that I have allowed to impact my mind that would not be pleasing to God. And, and I understand he purchased me with the price of his own blood. He owns that and I have allowed it to become defiled by some of the things of this world and the thought processes of this world. And this morning, I need to come and just confess my sins. I need to come back to the place where I'm truly abiding in him. I'm walking in that light, in that sense, that I am, I am with him, that I am lockstep with my Savior. Has your sin been dealt with at the cross? Are you saved? Have your sins been dealt with at the cross? We come back to the cross over and over again. Have you confessed the individual things that can build up between you and Jesus. Do you have a short sin account today? Praise God, when we come and confess it, he forgives it. And then he puts it into the depths of the sea of his own forgetfulness. And because he's God, he chooses to forget it and let it be done and let it be gone. And he never brings it up again. And he never remembers it anymore. It's done. It's dealt with at the cross. Have you been to the cross lately? Maybe this morning you just need to come back in prayer and get back to the cross and deal with some sins. Would you do that this morning? Father, we love